I often, um, I have yet to meet somebody who really who really believes this, but uh, I've, I've met a bunch of people who are familiar with the the uh, the idea that pastors work one one day a week, and uh, you know one hour a week. And um, uh, if I ever actually meet the person who really believes it and isn't just repeating it as a platitude, um, I would love to share with them how I spend my time. What what I experience in my own life is I always feel that there's a bunch of stuff I need to do. You know, should I should I read another book? Should I go to a conference? Should I uh, have a visit with somebody? Should I should I um, be preparing for a class? Uh, should I should I go get involved in my denominational activities? Or now that I'm uh, Union Church, either of my two denominations, um, um, there's all kinds of things I can do to 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 fill my time uh, beyond simply preparing for Sunday worship. And so so I, I I'm. It's not that it's not that it's necessarily hard. It's, a, it's the hardest part is really trying to decide what to do. Where is the best place to invest my time? How am I going to make it through the long list of things I could do uh, in order to be more effective in my ministry? So I ask myself the question: What should I do next? What's what should I do? And I have that question because there's an infinite number of things it seems like out in front of me uh, for me to spend my time working on. Um, and that's that's not just true as a pastor. It's true as a person. I think that that's. Very common. It's certainly true as a husband and as a father. I've got I've got a smartphone and it's got a little app on it. I'm not going to show you, but it's got an app on it that I track my to dos. I've got a to do list on it, and I checked before the service today, um, and the little badge next to it says there's 17 things that are like really need to be uh, looked at, um, and there's 106 things in the list as a whole. Now you have to realize that the last 20 or so. Are things like you know, um, you know, uh, be a better person or lose twenty pounds or something, where they've got all kinds of decisions tied up with them in themselves. They're not simply a you know, a check this one item off your list. They're they're whole projects. They're things that would take forever to to get through. So um, I've got a long list of things to do, and I'm telling you this not because I'm looking for sympathy, but but really because I think we can all relate to this. I think everybody's got. A long list of things to do. Some of them are a self-improvement or, or making the world a better place. And some of them are just the things we've got to do. We've got to, you know, we've got to, to do this for work. We've got a big uh, conference call coming up on, on Wednesday and we've got to do that. Or we've got, um, education. We've got back to school stuff we've got to get organized because the school, uh, school season's starting up again. We've got, uh, fishing to do. You know, our retirement is so crammed with things we never thought we'll fit them all in. We've got things we have to do. And, and I think that that's very common. I think most of us have been in the circumstance of saying, I wish that I could somehow make more progress through my list. Now, maybe you're not a list maker. Maybe it's all, you know, upstairs. But you probably still have a sense that there's a bunch of stuff that you'd like to get done, whether you actually check off the list or not. And, and I think, one of the one of the temptations that we can fall prey to is that we could hope that God would simply make them go away there that that God would make them just kind of you know as quick as I start they just go away that that God would would somehow lend his his effort to make these things happen and particularly <clears throat> particularly when you think about what we learned during the last the last series of messages we looked at where we looked at the the life of David up to the point where he became king, from starting with a Goliath and going all the way up to where he became king, one of the things we learned there is that God longs to bless us, that, that God uh, 
is it's not a rare occasion when God blesses us that that instead as we plunge in and start undertaking activities God longs to bless us because he's our heavenly father so so because of that we can start thinking okay well God wants to to solve my problems for me to 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 make good things come as a result of them wouldn't it be nice if God would just take care of all these problems for me and i think because that is such a temptation the bible has this long stretch of teaching here we're going to be looking at uh, this week and the next couple of weeks. It's called the Bread of Life Discourse. It's a, it's basically chapter 6 or the second half of chapter 6 of John's Gospel. So we're kind of plunging into it today. Um, but it teaches us what is the, the answer to that temptation. If you think that God should just kind of uh, check off all those items on your list for you, wouldn't it be great if God would just do all that stuff for you? Um, this scripture actually addresses that that real question that I think all of us wrestle with is why doesn't God just kind of get rid of these problems for me? And so we're going to be looking at it, and Jesus gives us not just the answer to that, but he gives us a mnemonic. He tells us to not work for the food that perishes, but to work for food that endures, food for eternal life. And the problem with that food metaphor is it's a metaphor, and it may not, it it is a metaphor. Jesus is, is talking about food, and we're going to see what he means by that. But, um, He's talking about food because the crowd has come to him for food. As our reading begins um, on verse 22, it says, the next day, uh, the next day after what? Well, if you go back and look at the rest of chapter 6, the first part of chapter 6, what has happened is that Jesus was being followed by crowds. They followed him out to the wilderness. They didn't have any food, and so Jesus multiplied loaves and fishes. There was somebody who had a couple of fishes and a few loaves of bread, and Jesus fed an entire multitude with them. miraculously and and it was um, it was that had happened the previous day and uh, two things happened as a result of it the crowd was very excited they said here's a guy who can do pretty amazing stuff let's make him king and then the other thing is Jesus said not going to have any part of that Jesus escaped and I think there's there's actually a little principle there if you come to Jesus with kind of dollar signs in your eyes thinking you know I'm going to get a I'm going to get what I want out of Jesus. Jesus uh, will withdraw from you, as, as it says here in the scriptures. But, but Jesus, we, Jesus withdraws from the, the crowd, and then his disciples get in their boat and they go back. So they leave Jesus there um, in the same side of the lake as this crowd. And some of the crowd probably disperses, but, but not all of it. A, a, a large chunk of the crowd is still there. And the next morning, they're wondering, where did Jesus go? We saw him kind of go up on the mountain, but we never saw him come back down and now he's gone, and the boat's gone. How did that happen? What had happened is during the night, after the disciples left, Jesus walked across the lake uh, to, to meet his disciples about halfway across, and then they took him the rest of the way. So they didn't see Jesus get in a boat, and the reason is because he never did. Um, Jesus never got in a boat, he, he, well, not till the middle of the lake. So they're wondering what happened to Jesus, and they're, they're on one side of the lake wondering where did Jesus and his disciples go, um, and they don't know, but it says... It says, um, it says the next day uh, they saw there had only been one boat there. They also saw he hadn't gotten into the boat, but his disciples had gone away. Then some boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread. So some, some other boats happened by, and they said, let's get in those and go to Capernaum, where we started at. So they went to Capernaum looking for Jesus. They got there, and they said, they said, when did you get here? They're confused. Uh, did he like walk the long way around and he just arrived a few minutes ago himself or 
or what happened? Did boat comes back? Did, did some boats come back and get him during the middle of the night? They're wondering how did Jesus get here and how long has he been here? And Jesus ignores their question. He says, "I know why you're here." He says, "Truly, I tell you, very truly, I tell you, you're not looking for me because of the signs you saw." Well, that's not really true. Of course, they're looking for him because of the signs they saw, but they don't see the signs as signs. They see it as a trick and a really good trick. They see Jesus as having fed a multitude. They are fishermen and farmers. Jesus provided bread and fish, and they're thinking, "I like this plan. If we could get this guy to do this all the time, we wouldn't have to work anymore." And Jesus says, "That's what you came for. You ate your fill of the loaves." And then he says, uh, "Do not work for food that perishes, but the food that endures for eternal life." So this is the food Jesus is talking about. He's saying, he's, he's telling them that that you're thinking about the food I gave you yesterday, and you're thinking, wouldn't it be great if he would just solve all my problems the same way? If he would, I wouldn't have to worry about a good catch of fish. I wouldn't have to worry about a good harvest because Jesus would cut to the chase. He would just provide me loaves and fishes every day. He says, don't work for food that perishes but for food that works that endures for eternal life which the son of man will give you now the problem here is that is that Jesus is using words that that have multiple meanings he talks about works and he talks about food and food to to people in the middle east uh, the the common word for for all kinds of food is is bread and so he talks about bread all the time and it means food it means things that feed you things that sustain you um, the other thing is he talks about work, and work can mean the things you do to, to make stuff happen. You know, I go to work every day, I do my work. Or it can mean a sign, a miraculous sign, a wondrous work, a work of God. So uh, I think that what makes the Gospel of John so frustrating to us is that John seemed to take delight. Whenever Jesus said something that could kind of go in two ways, there was kind of a play on words or something, John scribbled that down and said, I'm going to confuse people 2,000 years from now because I love the way Jesus has these these odd turns of phrases talking about work and so forth. So the crowd says, he says, he says don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that etern- that that endures for eternal life. Don't work don't work for stuff that's going to go away. Work for stuff that's important. Work for stuff that's eternal, food for eternal life. And the crowd says, I don't understand. The crowd says, what must we do? We're not miracle workers. How can we possibly do the works of God? We don't know how to do that. If we did, we wouldn't be following you around, which is actually kind of the point, as we'll see. They say, we don't know how to do miracles, so so that's the reason we came to you. We want you to do some more miracles for us. And Jesus says, it's not works, it's not miraculous signs. There's only one thing that God wants you to do. There's one work of God, and that is to believe him uh, who he has sent. And they say, okay, well, if you're going to tell us about God, then we're back at works again because we need a sign. We need a sign from you that shows that you're from God. Now, this seems strange because they just got fed yesterday. They saw the sign and they were so impressed with it that they wanted to make Jesus king. But now Jesus is suddenly talking about God and, and, and kings are in a lower realm than God. So they're saying, look, we know God does this stuff. God does this stuff all the time. It's part of our national history. God fed the entire nation of Israel um, he didn't just feed a crowd of 5,000 men um, one meal once in the wilderness. God fed hundreds of thousands of Israelites for 40 years. So you need to show us some kind of really big sign if you're going to be talking about God's stuff. 
And Jesus says, he says, well, first of all, it wasn't Moses who fed you, who fed your ancestors, who fed you the bread from heaven. It was God. Moses prayed for it. God provided it. Second of all, it wasn't bread from heaven. It was manna. And so it was it was bread that your ancestors didn't know much about. They called it manna, which means, what is it? Um, uh, so so it was it was kind of like bread, but they didn't know what it was. They called it bread from heaven. The psalmist calls it bread from heaven. But it wasn't the true bread from heaven. He's going to talk about the bread from true bread from heaven in a minute. He's saying this was actually, even the manna in the wilderness was a sign of the true bread that God would eventually provide. And as for numbers, he says, well, it's true, God fed Israel for 40 years in the wilderness, but the true bread from heaven is going to feed the entire world forever. So he says, the, even in terms of scale, it's all different. He says, this is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And so they say, well, give us that bread then. That sounds good enough. And Jesus says, I am that bread. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. So, what does this tell us? Now, it's, it's John's Gospel, so we've kind of got to wade through the symbols and the, the, the word play about, about food and, and works and life and so forth. But I think what, G, what Jesus is saying, I think what John wants us to hear Jesus saying, is uh, the, the question of how we, how we relate to God, particularly since we saw in the life of David how David was blessed by God. We can look at God as a means to an end. We can look at God as an instrument to our to-do list. That we can use God as a tool to get through our to-do list and to do it well. And because we have that temptation, we can begin to think of God kind of like a genie. You know, the stories about the, the, the magic lamp and the, you rub the lamp and the genie pops out. And how, what, what do you get? What do you get? The genie says, thank you for freeing me. I get, I get three wishes, okay? The genie gives you three wishes. So there's two reasons we should not be looking at God like a genie. The first one is because the genie only gives you three wishes. But the second one is because God is not a tool. Okay, the genie simply gives you your wish. The genie gives you your three wishes. You, you get the island fortress and the gigantic bank account and whatever else it is. You know, you, the third one's always the tough one, right? Um, but you, 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 you spend your three wishes and then you're done. And Jesus is saying, don't think of God that way. Don't think of God as somebody you're going to spend on perishable stuff, the stuff of this world, whether it's a bank account or an island fortress or, you know, I want to fly or, or whatever it is. Um, don't spend your wishes on that. What he says is aim higher. If I can, if I can bend the analogy out of shape, he says aim for a relationship with the genie. You know, uh, many of you, I am sure, have seen the movie uh, Aladdin, the, the, the Disney cartoon Aladdin. And one of the charming things about that movie is that's exactly what happens. Aladdin ends up using, I hate to spoil it, but it's been out 20 years, so, so too bad. Um, uh, Aladdin spends his last wish to help the genie, to free the genie from the, the curse he's been under, however, the, I forget the details. But he gives his wish because he has established a relationship with the genie. And Jesus is telling us, don't think of God as somebody who grants your wish. Yes, it would be nice to get fed every day. 
Absolutely. It would be nice to not have to work for it. It would be nice to have that conference call on Wednesday go good. It would be nice if the phone only showed 80 items instead of 106. It would be nice if God would make all these problems go away. But Jesus says, aim higher. Jesus says, don't think of God as a genie who will grant you a wish. He says, think of God as someone who wants to go on granting wishes, someone who wants to be with you, not just briefly for one, two, or three wishes, not just here in in the place where everything perishes, but in eternity where everything lasts forever. God wants to be with you forever. So, what do we do with this? What is our what is our takeaway? How how can we use this this week? Well, I think what this is telling us is go ahead and do the stuff you've got to do. Uh, in 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 the the Bible, it tells us that that we will uh, receive our daily bread by the sweat of our brows. That's what God pronounces on Adam in the garden. It's the way the world works. You're still going to have a conference call on Wednesday. You're still going to have um, a meeting. You're still going to have to shop for school supplies. You still have things you need to do. You've got to earn your daily bread. But instead of saying, I wish God would make this problem go away, invite God to be with you as you do it. See each problem on your to-do list as an arena where God and you will take on that particular challenge. So, so... Picture, picture your whatever it is. Picture something that's on your list, something you need to do this week, and say to yourself, instead of asking God to solve this problem for me, as you might have been tempted to by watching David, instead say, this is a place I want the bread of life. I want Jesus to be with me as I go about it, as I use the gifts God gave me to be about the work of earning my daily bread, my, my perishable food. I think as we do that, we will find that we have a freedom to do it in a different way. We have a freedom to, to, to succeed at it without loving it and to fail and learn from it when we do because it's just food that perishes. It's an opportunity to be related to God, but we're no longer as concerned about the work that's getting done as about the one who's there with us as we go about it. I think that that's what we can take from this. So, so picture that thing or those 106 things on your list and say, I'm going to have 106 opportunities to look for God's presence, to look for God in my life alongside me working on the tasks that I'm concerned about this week. I have this, this dream as I think about this. I imagine 20, 30 years from now as the world as the world starts starts thinking about work in, in, a, in a biblical fashion, as we start thinking of it not as a thing that God will do for us, but that we will do in God's presence, that, that management gurus will start to point to Christians and say to non-Christians, work like them, do your work like them. I don't know if that's going to happen, but I just have this, this picture because, because I would love to see the church as showing a better way to relate to work. This is a country we have workaholism and we've got people who can't stand work. We don't have people who enjoy their work in a responsible, biblical way and don't make an idol of it because they see it as, as something that, that they have to get God um, to, to do for them or, or they will be in trouble. If we, could, if we could have the idea that God is going to bless us in our work, 
But the real blessing is we're going to be related to God as we do it. I think we would be such great workers, and I'd love to see management gurus point to us and say, be like them. Thanks be to God. Amen.